Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, it's me, Jason, the host of Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom. And today we're sharing a bonus episode presented with minimal editing that gives you, the listener, a behind-the-scenes look at this series. Today we're going to have an interview with Mark Bookman, who spent years in the Philadelphia Defenders Association fighting almost exclusively capital cases And there are two things to unpack there. If you listen to my other podcast, Wrongful Conviction, you know about how unjust Philadelphia was, especially in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Well, hell, pretty much straight on through until Larry Krasner got there to clean up that mess. And to be working mostly death penalty cases, Mark Bookman was pretty much at the eye of that storm. And secondly, if you know me at all, you know that I am a devout death penalty abolitionist. So when I got to reading Mark's book, The Descending Spiral, Exposing the Death Penalty in 12 Essays, I just had to make an extra episode just for him. Mark is the co-founder of a nonprofit called the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation, where he continues his fight for the indigent defendants in Philly and beyond. Mark Bookman, right now, on Righteous Convictions. Fantastic. Okay. All right. Good. All right. So Mark is the executive director of the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation, a nonprofit that provides services for those facing possible execution. And before that, he spent a lot of years in the homicide unit of the Defender Association of Philadelphia. He's published essays in the most prestigious magazines and journals. And his new book, which I'm really excited to talk about, which I'm reading now, is called The Descending Spiral exposing the death penalty in 12 essays. And I'm going to read the quote that starts your book, which is a quote from the great Martin Luther King Jr., who said, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. And we're here really to talk about the book and the death penalty. But let's start by talking about the death penalty and just a brief background on you. How did you end up becoming a leading advocate and voice for the voiceless, the people who are sentenced to death in this country, many of whom are innocent, some of whom are guilty. But you really have have done a fantastic job, in my view, of highlighting 
the fact that one size doesn't fit all. And even among the people who are guilty, there's a lot of nuance. So how did you get into this work? So from pretty early on, I always knew that I wanted to be in a courtroom. And I always knew that I wanted to you know, affect social change in some way. I knew early on that I wanted to be a public defender and to, you know, work at what I thought was the highest levels in the most serious cases. So that combination of of thinking, I guess, kind of naturally led me to doing death penalty work. I was in Philadelphia. Had I been, I think, in Michigan or Wisconsin, some state that was smart enough not to have capital punishment, it's possible I wouldn't have been doing that. But since I was in Philadelphia, which is what I like to call a Petri dish for capital punishment, it was logical for me or reasonable for me to try to do that work. It wasn't all that easy because politics had prevented the Defender Association from doing death penalty work. They were giving these cases to to court-appointed lawyers. And it wasn't until a million scandals broke about the job that the court-appointed lawyers were doing that the court administration finally decided to give the defender 20% of the homicide cases. And so that's when I got started doing death penalty work. Once we started doing them, I was in the homicide unit for for 17 years, just doing largely death penalty work, because that was the nature of the Philadelphia practice. So, you know, I, I don't see that work very differently from writing about the death penalty, arguing about it in a higher court, it's all kind of of one piece. You said something earlier, Jason, that I thought it, you know, is exactly right. It's, it's a sense of individualized sentencing. That's the legal phrase for what you were saying, which is that everybody, everybody is different. And it's that individualized sentencing that is the most important part of death penalty work. I mean, aside from the moral problems of the death penalty itself, everyone is different and everyone has an incredibly important story to tell. And when that story is told correctly, no matter what the story is, a jury of 12 will see the humanity in that person and not think that capital punishment is the right answer. Innocent people and guilty people alike. It makes no sense whatsoever to me on any level. And, you know, I'll never forget reading the story of Tony Wright that was first published in Rolling Stone magazine. And there was a pull quote that will stick with me for probably as long as I live, which was that it said, and I'm paraphrasing, but in, in the 90s, a black man had a better chance of getting justice in Philadelphia, Mississippi than in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And, you know, that's one of those phrases, like I said, you just, you live with it. And of course, one thing we know about the death penalty is that there are no rich people on death row, right? Everyone who's been sentenced to death, I think without exception in America, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of them, was poor. And that is something that really is, it should trouble everyone of good conscience. I'm going to quote Again, from this is from the flap of your book. And again, the book is a descending spiral, exposing the death penalty in 12 essays. The very first paragraph on the inside flap of the book, it starts, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg has noted, people who are well represented at trial rarely get the death penalty. But the problems with capital punishment run far deeper than just bad representation. As a result of prosecutorial misconduct, racist judges and jurors, drunken lawyering, and executing the innocent and the mentally ill, precious few people on trial for their lives get the fair trial the Constitution demands. That kind of says it all, doesn't it, Mark? 
Yeah, that's the Philadelphia story in a nutshell. Now, it's the, it's the story of many places. But the quote that you talked about, the Philadelphia, Mississippi quote, when we were looking at the resources given to court-appointed lawyers during all these years when the defender was was just starting to handle cases, the fees paid to the court-appointed lawyers in Philadelphia, Mississippi were higher than the money paid to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The fact is that indigent clients don't get proper representation when the lawyers are paid nothing because the lawyers that are paid nothing end up doing nothing. That's the, the, the kernel of the injustice. And that's the story of Philadelphia, where they were taking the death penalty so non-seriously that they were paying practically nothing to the lawyers. The lawyers would do nothing. A death sentence would ensue. And then some good lawyers in the federal defender office in Philadelphia would then reverse that death sentence. It was an endless cycle of death sentence reversal, death sentence reversal. And, you know, that's one of many problems with the death penalty at this point. You know, there's a great movie called Gideon's Army that highlights the plight of public defenders. It, it, it follows three public defenders, I think it's in the South, as they struggle to make ends meet. I mean, there's a tough scene to watch, really, where one of these lawyers is is literally trying to find quarters in the couch to get gas to get to court to represent her client. And I think, you know, what you said is so true, a death penalty case, or even in a more mundane case, if a lawyer can't pay their bills, can't put food on the table, you can hardly expect them to be prepared adequately for a case or to mount a proper representation of their client. And that's something that's just one of the many, many problems that we need to address in our criminal legal system. So I want to talk, though, specifically, this is what I'm really interested to talk to you about. What I learned from the very first chapter in your book is that even among the people that society has come to categorize as monsters, right? You know, people who were involved in heinous crimes. Even among them, the nuance is ignored or trampled on. And when I say the nuance, the nuances really of their background, upbringing, their history, their psychological limitations. I'm talking, of course, about the Carroll City killings. I, you know, it's funny. When you were doing your introduction, I actually thought you were talking about the next chapter, which is about a man named Andre Thomas, who committed a, a really horrible crime, but is very profoundly mentally ill. So let, let's go back to the Carroll City killings. I'm looking through it now, even on page, by page 13, you're already hooked. I like books where you don't, doesn't take too long to get into it. You know, like for me, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm slightly ADD or something, but this book hooks you from the very opening. And, you know, this particular case, the Carroll City killings, on the face of it, looked like as bad of a crime as you could have, right? For the media and for the general public, it looked like a sort of a home invasion, lots of people killed, three perpetrators, bad guys. These are guys that need to go down for this crime, right? This is this is an open and shut situation. And as you read along, you start to find out that there's a lot more to the story than what meets the eye. Can you set the stage of us? What was the Carroll City case? So it depends on what version you're hearing. You're right that when it was presented, it was basically an assassination of strangers. And I don't know how many people ended up getting killed. I think it was six, maybe. So it was Buford White and John Ferguson and another man 
it's hard to separate the actual facts from the presented facts. The actual facts are that it was a, a, a huge drug deal that was set up in Carroll City. That's not the way it was portrayed in the initial press. It was, you know, a home invasion robbery. And it was presented as a, as a bunch of strangers who just happened to be there and were executed. As it turned out, the strangers had come in preparation for a, a major drug deal. There was some double crossing involved that had resulted in killings by this very profoundly mentally ill guy, John Ferguson. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna just go through a few of the pertinent facts here, right? So this is back in 1977 when Miami was awash in yes. coke and, and coke money, and there was a, a huge amount of corruption, you know, amongst police as well as obviously you know drug dealers uh, running wild in the city. So what happened was this guy Ferguson entered into the house. Eight people were forced to lie on the floor. Their hands were tied behind their backs. It sounds like something out of Scarface. And they were shot in the back of the head. Two of them somehow or other survived, which is a, a sort of a miracle. But Ferguson and Francois pulled the triggers. No one ever claimed that Mr. White pulled the trigger. And Buford White, he thought he was just going there for a robbery. He wanted no parts of the murder. And they asked him to get rid of the gun. He said, I'm not getting rid of anything. He wasn't involved at all. Didn't pull the trigger. Didn't want to be involved in a murder. Didn't want to help after the murder. And that's why the jury gave him a 12 nothing vote for life. That didn't matter to this judge. The law allowed him to override the jury's vote. The fact that that was even allowed to take place is, is shocking. For me, there's so much in, in each of these stories. You, it's hard to capture you know, one concept. But, but the, the, the one that really jumps out from, from that story is the, the arbitrariness of the death penalty, where the person that's barely involved in the horrible murders, he gets executed in a few years. The other man who's much more involved, John Ferguson, is profoundly mentally ill and very, very disturbed. He's actually deeply involved in the murders, and he lives another 30 years before being executed. You talk about the nuances of someone's life. Really, it's just getting to know them in detail, whether they are the nicest guys in the world who had a really awful day or whether they're profoundly mentally ill and also had an awful day. Unless the capital defense team presents the full picture of that person, then the jury doesn't know. When you get to know someone, whether it's Buford White or John Ferguson or Andre Thomas, if the jury really gets to know that person, there's not a chance in the world that they're going to vote to execute them. Think about Mr. White. His attorney did basically nothing to help him, didn't, didn't talk about his background but his background is pretty much as bad as it gets, right? I'm going to read from the book now. His mother, who started having children at 12 and had had her fifth by the age of 20, was routinely and savagely beaten by his father, Ernest. We're talking about Buford White now. And when his father was not beating her, Buford himself became the target. When he was three, his father knocked him out cold, driving his teeth through his tongue. A doctor later concluded well, it's hard for me to even read this. Oh, so disgusting. A doctor later concluded that this assault and others were the likely cause of seizures that plagued Buford through his lifetime. When the father, Ernest, left the family to go to Detroit, his mother took up with a series of men just as abusive, eventually killing one of them and going to prison for a seven-year sentence. Buford abandoned time and again as a youngster and now without a mother or a father, nonetheless shown in school. 
25 years later in a statement given to Buford's lawyers, but never presented at court. That's me editorializing there. His junior high school principal recalled him as, quote, an ideal young person, academically gifted. He probably would have been a straight A student if he would have um, just turned the page. If he would have had some stability in the home and a place to study, one of those kids that a teacher looks forward to being around. Another teacher described him as, quote, truly one of my tops. A third said the reason she remembered him all those years later was because I liked him so much. And he was also a terrific athlete with major league potential. You know, so this is a guy, I mean, he's sort of like a perfect example of a person whose background the system should take into consideration. But for all these reasons, None of that stuff mattered. And you make the important point that the jury voted 12 nothing for life without even knowing a lot of, of this information. But I don't know if anything would have changed this judge's mind. It's inconceivable that, that we would allow a judge to overrule that, and yet that's what happened. But, but this is one of my biggest concerns in writing this book, is that people will read about Buford White, and they'll think that that's the exception that it's one of those really rare cases where justice wasn't done. And this is the point I kind of make at the end of the book, which is these cases are typical. There's nothing about Buford White's background that stands out from hundreds of other people's backgrounds on death row. These are the rules. They're not the exceptions. And so the Buford White case, you know, I didn't cherry pick when I wrote these essays. I wrote them about stories that I think people don't know. You know, not the high profile cases, Scott Peterson or OJ Simpson or the cases that have been, you know, well trod. These are to a certain extent run of the mill cases that are extraordinary because every one of these stories, everyone on death row has this extraordinary story. And so I just think it's important for people to know that these essays haven't been cherry picked. What happened to Buford White has happened to hundreds of people with similar backgrounds, as horrifying as that sounds. It's hard to believe that we're still talking about the death penalty in the present tense, but we still execute people in America. Sierra Leone banned the death penalty, right? Fucking Sierra Leone. Like, I mean, we are in such a terrible place in the world in terms of our standing. You know, when you look at the countries that still have the death penalty and the ones, there are very few that execute more people than we do. And it's not a list you would want to be on. You can guess the countries. I'm not going to read them off, but it's it's really uh, the United States does not belong on that list. We need to abolish it completely. And one of the reasons I feel that we need to abolish it is because it really depends not on the crime that you committed, but on the, well, as we talked about, it depends on the quality of your representation, but it also depends on what state you're in and what county you're in and who the prosecutor is and who the judge is. And if you could talk about an individual case, Mark, like, I mean, which case keeps you up at night of all the ones that you've worked on or known about or written about? Before I do that, Jason, let me just say there is hope here. Virginia just got rid of the death penalty. That's a state that has executed more than anyone else ever. So, you know, we can learn. Virginia did it by bringing in competent lawyers, like we've been talking about, who essentially eliminated the death penalty as an option. And finally, the legislature turned around and said, what's the point? 
We're not getting any more death sentences. We're throwing away all this money. And so Virginia, of all states, that would be one of the last states you would expect to get rid of it. They used to execute very, very regularly. So there's hope even for the United States. We're moving in the right direction just slowly. So you're asking me to pick one case. It's it's a little bit of a Sophie's choice, frankly, because it, it, it's so hard to just isolate one case. I, I worked on a case very recently, Kareem Johnson. He's actually referenced in the afterward. I didn't write about him. He's a man that went to death row for nine years based on the Commonwealth's argument that the victim's blood was on his hat. The defense attorneys did not look at the hat. They did not look at the DNA report. They did not look at the photographs of the crime scene or of the hat. And the prosecution argued strong enough to put a man on death row for nine years that the blood on the hat was the unbiased evidence of his guilt. And nine years later, it turned out there was no blood on the hat at all, zero. And they were looking at a different hat. It was a hat worn by the victim. So naturally, the victim's blood was on the hat worn by the victim when he was shot. So, you know, there are countless cases like that where the defense attorneys are sleeping through the trial, either literally or figuratively. The prosecution ultimately said that they had not done it intentionally. They had just done it, what the court called reckless indifference to the facts. So imagine putting a man on death row for nine years when neither side has actually looked at the facts of the case. You know, if that case doesn't give you pause about the death penalty, I don't know what case would. Well, I can I can recite a bunch of them. And there's a wonderful organization called Witness to Innocence that people should look up, which is made up entirely of death row survivors who travel the country advocating for the abolition of the death penalty. My great friend, Kirk Bloodsworth, a death row survivor from Maryland, uh, led the organization for quite some time. They're doing fantastic work. Yeah. Let me just say, Jason, I love Kirk. He's a fantastic spokesperson and Witness to Innocence is based in Philadelphia. I agree. Great organization. Great organization. And please, uh, like I said, do check them out. Follow them on social media. Go to their website, whatever. It's Witness to Innocence. And we'll link to that in the episode bio. You know, you can oppose the death penalty on all kinds of different grounds, right? Sister Helen Prejean, you know, she comes at it from the religious perspective. But for me, you know, one of the most disturbing things is the fact that we have executed so many innocent people and we continue to keep innocent people on death row, even sometimes long after they've proven their innocence. But you look at a state like Florida, right? And there's a statistic that boggles my mind, which is that since the reinstatement of the death penalty in Florida, 99 people have been executed. And during that same period of time, 31 people have been exonerated from death row in Florida. So even if you assume that all the people that Florida has executed were guilty, we know that's not true because of Jesse Tafaro and others, but they're not even getting it right any reasonable percentage of the time. It's nuts. How can we continue to do this? I think what you're describing is a failed government program. Try to imagine an airline that stays in business where one in four planes take off and crash. That's basically what we're talking about here. When you, when you use those statistics from Florida, who in their right mind would think that this is a successful public policy, given those numbers? Mark, tell us more about the book. You know, if someone was going to pick up the book and, and they say, well, I only have time to read one chapter, 
which one would you point them towards and why? Well, like I said, it, it is there gets to be a little bit of a Sophie's choice picking between essays, but I, I think I might suggest two. There's only one autobiographical essay in the book. It's a, it's about a team that I worked on in the Defender office, and it's the last essay in the book, and it's called Smoke. And uh, I think that really provides the best insight I could find as to the work that defense teams do. And the other essay, I think, is the Andre Thomas essay. There's actually two of them. But the first one is How Crazy is Too Crazy to be Executed. And I I mentioned Andre earlier, a profoundly mentally ill person who ultimately blinded himself while on death row. Uh, And this is really a long story, but Andre uh, is profoundly mentally ill. He killed his estranged wife and two children. Andre is an African-American. His wife was white. Three jurors said that they were opposed to interracial marriage. And so you would think that that is sort of overtly racist jury making judgments. But the Fifth Circuit just said that was okay just a couple of months ago. So that case is headed to the Supreme Court and we'll, we'll see what happens when three jurors kind of expose themselves that way and the defense attorneys don't do anything about it. All of this, for me, comes down to the idea, if you indulge me, I get a lot of insight from, believe it or not, The Lion King. The Lion King, you'll recall, is about a heinous murderer, Scar, and he kills Mufasa, the king of the jungle, a terrific citizen. And and Scar then compounds the, the heinous crime he's committed by framing Mufasa's son, Simba. So it's, you know, the worst kind of premeditated murder that you can have. Simba grows up and puts Scar on trial, basically, and beats Scar in in a, a lion-like trial. They tumble around the in the dirt and Simba ends up on top. And then Scar asks this million-dollar question. He says, What are you going to do now, Simba? Are you going to kill me? And I, I tell this story a lot. I stopped the tape. This was many, many years ago. And I asked my six-year-old daughter what she thought Simba should do. And she said, well, it's not nice to kill people, even if they're mean. And Simba then says the magic words, which is, I'm not going to kill you, Scar. Uh, I'm going to banish you from the community. That's basically what he says. So, you know, when I think of the Andre Thomas story, we're asking jurors to act like the most heinous murderers. And that's an awful thing to do. You know, when we look at Andre Thomas and we see a profoundly mentally ill guy, you know, what should we do? Should we act like that profoundly mentally ill guy or should we act calmly and deliberately? And that's what Simba does. I mean, imagine if Simba, instead of saying, I'm going to banish you from the community, said, yes, Scar, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to bind your hands and feet to a gurney and then I'm going to inject poison in your veins until you're dead. Every little kid, would go running out of the theater screaming and the parents would be suing Disney. So, you know, somewhere between the age of six and the age of adulthood, we lose this this sense that we should not be acting like a murderer. I don't know why we lose that sense, but a lot of us seem to lose it. So the Andre Thomas story hopefully captures that that idea. Mark, let's talk, if you would, about the 
crazy case of Russell Weinberger and Felix Rodriguez. If I'm not mistaken, this is a wrongful conviction death penalty case with a false confession thrown in, right? And false confessions are so important that we have an entire series devoted to it called Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions, which of course is hosted by the incredible team of Laura Nyrider and Steve Drizzen. But t- this particular case stands out. Tell us why. This really is a remarkable set of facts. In the early 80s, I guess it was, an eye doctor gets killed in a sort of a poor section of, of Philadelphia. And a detective named Siminski, he gets confessions from two people, Felix Rodriguez and, and Russell Weinberger. And then ultimately, the Commonwealth cuts a deal with Weinberger, and Weinberger agrees to testify against his friend Rodriguez. So both of them go to prison for a very, very long period of time. Rodriguez for life and Weinberger, I think his deal is for 15 to 30 years. And 20 years later, they're both still in prison. 20 years later, a man named Anthony Sylvanus gets arrested on a cold case. They match his fingerprints to a crime. And I represented uh, Mr. Sylvanus along with my partner, Carl Schwartz. And Mr. Sylvanus couldn't be stopped from confessing. So he confessed to the crime he got caught for. He also confessed to four or five other murders. He just, he wanted to clear his conscience at that point. And so they arrested him for all of the murders he confessed to, except for one, because one of the murders he confessed to was the murder that Russell Weinberger and Felix Rodriguez were serving their time for. So Sylvanus had come along and confessed to the killing of this eye doctor. And sure enough, one thing led to another. Uh, an investigation was done by the Commonwealth, and they realized that Weinberger and Rodriguez were totally innocent and had been made to falsely confess by the threat of the death penalty, that this detective had threatened that they would get the death penalty if they didn't confess. And so they both did confess, even though they were completely innocent. And what is truly remarkable about the case, I think, is that Weinberger, a very low-functioning man, he's now passed away. So no one could test him for intellectual disability, but 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 by all accounts, he was intellectually disabled. And he was persuaded not only to falsely confess, but to take a deal for years in prison and testify, actually testify that he was guilty and that his friend was guilty. So they ultimately confessed because of the threat that they might be executed. The, the detective had persuaded them that they might both be executed. So it's a false confession of a magnitude that you almost never see, which is not, not only do they falsely confess, but that one of them actually testifies that he did it. And yet both men were clearly innocent. Both men were released from prison. Mr. Sylvanus persuaded me and everyone else uh, that he had committed that crime, was guilty by all accounts. He has since committed suicide. So, so you, you know, false confessions are an amazing phenomenon. There's a lot of social science that backs this up. You ask people if they believe in false confessions. To a person, they will almost always say, yes, I believe in false confessions. But if you ask those same people if they would falsely confess to a horrible crime, they almost uniformly say they would not. So, you know, there's a disconnect there. But we know that false confessions are this, you know, horrifying phenomenon. 
And I don't think any case lays a groundwork for that more than this one, uh, the Confessions of of Innocent Men. Uh, Just a remarkable story. And, you know, I talked to Mr. Rodriguez. I would have assumed he was horribly bitter about his friend Russell Weinberger testifying, but he wasn't. He was actually bitter at the detective who had threatened them with death because he knew that his friend was, was intellectually disabled and he didn't blame him. He blamed this option of the death penalty for something that neither one of them had done. And that's what really got under his skin ultimately. These, both these men did 20 years in prison for, for something they clearly didn't do. And, and uh, I'll never forget the judge who thanked the Commonwealth for avoiding what might have been an injustice. And I was just, I was in the courtroom, I was thinking, you know, might have been an injustice. Both these innocent people did 20 years in prison. It's a horrifying story, as most of these stories. The best that happens is a horrible injustice. The worst that happens is an even more horrible injustice. Right. And then on top of that, there's an even more horrible injustice than that, which is that in so many of these cases, the actual perpetrator remains free and goes on to, uh, you know, maim, murder, you know, brutalize other people who never should have been victims in the first place if the system had actually operated in a faithful or steadfast or even honest way and had, well, had not pursued the innocent guys or persecuted and prosecuted the innocent guys, but had instead done the real work to find the person who actually committed these these heinous crimes. And of course, in death penalty cases, the crimes really are heinous. So with that being said, again, the book is A Descending Spiral, Exposing the Death Penalty in 12 Essays. I recommend it. It's 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 informative, but it also reads like a novel. So I'm really enjoying it. It's by Mark Bookman, who's our guest today. Mark, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who are saying, well, what can I do to help? Mark, tell us about the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. And if people want to donate or get involved, if you could just talk a little bit about how they can do that. Yeah. So I left the Defender Association in 2010 with Dana Cook. We started the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. It's it's a resource for anyone facing execution in Pennsylvania and, and, and more and more lately nationally. We do our best to help people, whether it's pre-trial or post-conviction, to help. We're an independent nonprofit. Uh, encourage people to go to atlanticcenter.org for a good sense of what we do. We do largely death penalty work and juvenile resentencing work as well. And we've been lately branching out into commutations because there's so many people in prison who are desperately looking for help and really should be getting released. So we're, we're doing our best. We, we really could use the support. And, and again, AtlanticCenter.org will give everybody a pretty good sense of the range of of work that we do. Our, our slogan since we started was trying to put ourselves out of business since 2010. And that's really the goal. We're sort of far away from that goal right now. But the donations that we get, the, the resources that we get from people, it, you know, it goes directly to the work of representing poor people in trouble. Uh, yeah. So we're going to link to the website in the bio. And of course, we'll also have a link for people who want to get a hold of the book. I am personally holding in my hands right now my own autographed copy. I don't want to brag. I'm just saying. <laughs> so anyway, um, and I will say, you know, I want to close. We we opened the show with a quote from Martin Luther King. I think I should close with a quote from somebody who I consider to be almost the modern incarnation 
of Martin Luther King. And of course, I'm talking about Brian Stevenson, where he said that proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including this vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. My work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. And you can look up the quote. It's much more nuanced and, and, and longer than that, but it's a great quote from a great man. So um, again, Mark Bookman, thank you for joining us here today. The ending of our show is the same as well. It's always different, but it's always the same each week. Um, First of all, again, thank you for being here. And now I turn my microphone off. I leave yours on where you can just rant about as little or as much of anything that's bothering you <laughs> as you want. I, I said this earlier, but I, I think it's it's important for people to know that, uh, and this is kind of how I ended the book, which is that these essays are the tip of the iceberg. That's what I really wanted to to drive home. I, I, I didn't want people to think that I just looked far and wide and found an, a lawyer who was drinking a quart of vodka a night during a capital trial and, and then a, a juror who said he gave the death penalty to the person because he was an N-word and these two intellectually disabled people who confessed to a crime. I didn't want uh, the readers to come away thinking, man, these are really bizarre, unusual exceptions. They are the tip of the iceberg. You could look at virtually every case on death row and find similarities to these 12 essays. And so, you know, I guess my point was that this really is a failed policy. And if you read these these essays, I'm hoping you'll be appalled and flabbergasted. But I hope by the end, you will come to the conclusion that we got to do something about this because these cases are not unusual. These cases aren't the exception, they are the rule. Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions with Jason Plum. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. You can also follow me on TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today.